The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, record-breaking auction sales in New York. Are we in a new boom? Plus, Fabergé in London and a rediscovered Dura drawing comes up for sale. Anna Brady joins me to discuss the sales in New York over the last two weeks and what they tell us about the market and collectors. In London, Amy Dawson visits the Victoria and Albert Museum to hear about Carl Fabergé's shop in the UK capital, the subject of a new exhibition. And in this episode's Work of the Week, we learn about Albrecht Dürer's Virgin and Child with a Flower on a Grassy Bench, which is about to go on view at Agnews Gallery in London. Before we begin, students can save 25% on a subscription to the Art Newspaper's website and apps for iOS and Android. Visit theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page, select the student subscription and enter the code SC21 to unlock the discount. Now, auction records have been tumbling in New York over the past two weeks as the major auction houses have held their big sales of the season. Our art market editor, Anna Brady, has been following the events and I spoke to her about the big sales and who's buying. Anna, the big sales were last week at Christie's, the Cox collection, and this week at Sotheby's, the Maclow collection. Can you set the scene with those particular collections? Because they're massive collections, right? Yeah, they're massive and it's probably kind of indicative of this big backlog caused by the pandemic that we've got these two collections coming on the market at, at the same time so first of all the cox collection which christie's announced it had got to to great fanfare now edwin cox was a texas oil man and philanthropist he died in dallas last november age 99 and he built up this huge collection of impressionism it's it's really a sort of who's who of impressionism it included works by monet pizarro renoir bonnard Vuillard, degas and kaivot as well um, so, so this work came up for sale last week. It was a 23 lot sale. It all sold. It's a white glove sale, they call it. And it fetched $332 million, which was above its estimate quite, quite considerably. So Christie's had got this big collection, which was much vaunted. Sotheby's then were determined to get the other collection, which has been in the offing for quite a while. So the collection of Harry and Linda Macklow has been much anticipated. They have been going through this long-running and very, very bitter divorce. So to set the scene, um, the Cox collection, the background to that is probably a lot more simple. You know, he was an elderly man who died. The Macklow collection comes from this pair who Linda Macklow filed for divorce five years ago from Harry Macklow, who's a big um, property developer, entrepreneur, billionaire. So she filed for divorce five years ago, but they've been unable to agree on pretty much anything. And namely the value of their enormous art collection, which they amassed over half a century. And it was, in fact, mainly driven by Linda, the buying of it. And their valuations of it differed by up to $30 million. So last January, a court said to them, you can't agree on this, um, so you're going to have to sell it at auction. That's the only way of getting a kind of fair, transparent price. But he set a three-year limit on that. She, the judge, appointed Michael Findlay of Aquaveda Galleries as the receiver. So he had to broker the sale of 65 of the most valuable works. And last spring, Findlay decided to delay the sale due to the pandemic. But now he 
really has to do it because they're getting a bit close to the three-year limit. So he took it to both Christie's and Sotheby's and they had to be incredibly competitive about trying to get this sale in. So effectively what that meant is that Sotheby's determined to get this collection because Christie's got the big Cox collection. They kind of had to buy it, um, essentially. They had to put down, the word on the street is they put down $695 million dollars worth as a guarantee so they would guarantee that they would sell these 65 works for that much in two tranches um and they got it so they announced this with a kind of ridiculous um webinar historic webinar they called it a few months ago where they announced that they were going to sell this collection which is really kind of i suppose you could call it sort of latter 20th century upper east side taste and what they bought is is really the sort of big white alpha male names of the kind of post-war canon so we've got Twombly, Warhol, Rothko, Richter, Pollock, Coons. Um, there were very few women when they sold the, the collection on Monday night at Sotheby's with the works, two works by female artists, Tauber Auerbach and a Agnes Martin. So um, the question beforehand really was this is undoubtedly a huge collection but is it sort of dated tastes now I mean do people these are two octogenarians do they have the same kind of taste as the people who are buying now and um, particularly when there's a kind of huge raft of new buyers coming in you know can these names still incite the same kind of bidding interest and in, in these same sort of huge numbers at the time of the sort of nft craze and people works going for nearly 70 million dollars so again, for some time, there's been a bit of are the imps and mods, as they're called, in a sense, becoming that much further back in history that the, the contemporary, so-called contemporary or late modern will dominate and that will become the kind of classic taste of our period. But in a way, is it just the sheer quality of the works at both the Cox and the Maclow collection that meant that ultimately these works went beyond estimates in, in, in many cases? Yeah, I mean, I think people were worried about this as it as it proved, I mean, that those worries were not really very, very founded. I mean, we, we should point point out that both of these collections were essentially pre-sold anyway, specifically the Maclow collection. You know, it was entirely guaranteed. So it's all sold before the sale. But it, it did show that there is a lot of demand for this. There's also a lot of pent up wealth. There's a lot of people who have got richer over the pandemic. You know, the, the 400 richest Americans apparently have seen their wealth increase this year by 40 percent according to Forbes. So people have, whilst the poor have got poorer, the, the very, very rich have got a lot richer and they've had less sort of ways to spend their money recently over the pandemic. So there was a lot of people waiting for this, this fantastic material that was coming up and they also had a lot of money to spend on it. So I think what we're seeing here is, yes, there is sort of new tastes emerging and there's very much this speculative market for younger buyers, which we've spoken a lot about recently. And that is shown through as well in these New York sales. Now, as one dealer put it to a colleague, Scott Rayburn, recently, two paradigms can exist at once. The fact that, that you've got these young buyers coming in, a lot of um, speculative bidding on younger um, artists and also artists of colour, it's a more sort of diverse range of artists, doesn't mean that there is then no market for these blue chip 20th century masters as well. I mean, that there is still a market for that. And I think these two collections did a long way to kind of prove that and maybe sort of settle some nerves around that as well, that this still is a kind of blue chip in investment area. 
So in other words, for auction houses and galleries, etc., this is a this is boom time, right? Because if you've got the old school still buying and you have new blood coming in who are buying, then that means your quid's in, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you say, it, it's excellent. They've got two kind of big revenue streams coming in here. First of all, I think we should point out as well that I think this sales season really showed how auctions through the pandemic because they've been able to adapt very well to the pandemic at a time when many art fairs cannot happen in person and online viewing rooms are awful basically <laughs> they just don't adapt well to being online um the auctions have actually become a kind of predominant sort of form of selling so they've done quite quite well and i think that's perhaps sort of coming out here that you get all of this very kind of hot material coming up for sale so you have that and then yes you also have the fact that the rich are getting richer there's also this new sort of crypto wealth um coming through and they're starting to buy in the art market probably i would say attracted by nfts as well a lot of them come into the market sort of through the nfts um so which obviously basically has been a boom this year within the main mainstream art market it's an incredibly young trend, um, really, as far as the art world is concerned, that only really started back in March when Beeple's work sold for over $69 million. So that kind of brought in probably some more tech wealth. Some of them are expanding out within the art market now. So they may have come in initially interested in NFTs, which seem to sort of maybe speak more the sort of tech entrepreneurs own language and appeal to their own value system in a way that perhaps the traditional art market did not. So they've come in this way, but it's interesting um, to look at somebody like Justin Sun, who is a Chinese tech entrepreneur, and he's the chief executive of a company called BitTorrent. Now he was the underbidder on the Beeple work that sold back in March. But then in the Maclo sale, he bought Linez, which is this Giacometti sculpture, which is a wonderful, wonderful work. Yeah, hugely important Giacometti work. Yeah, hugely, yeah. hugely important Giacometti work. So he bought that um, for $78.3 million, which is a real sort of shock that he would suddenly kind of buy at that level in what is a very kind of traditional taste. Now, he, he's donating that to Ape NFT, which is a, a blockchain-based fractional ownership fund. And he's also been buying other works this year, like Picasso, um, Mary Therese painting for 14.6 million and a Warhol three portraits for 1.4 million at Christie's. And what he's what he said he's going to do is he's donating these to this NFT fund um, and then which aims to kind of register major works of art as NFTs on the blockchain. So this sort of shows a new collector coming in who then is sort of expanding their interest into what is a very kind of traditional art market taste, buying these works and then kind of registering on the blockchain and turning them into NFTs. So that's an interesting alliance, I think. Can we drill down into that a little bit more? Because I'm I'm curious about, because one of the things was that Justin Sun, after he'd bought this Giacometti, then went online to talk about the fact that he had. And this is a really interesting thing because, of course, there's almost like a kind of traditional agreement about how you behave when you buy and sell works of art. So that the the, the collector, it will it will go to an anonymous private collection and, and then, you know, journalists like you might drill down a bit and find out who they are. But you don't often get the collector going online and then saying, I've bought this Giacometti. It's, you know, and also things like he drew attention to the fact that it was a, it was the cover of the catalogue. So he was sort of really proud that he got, you know, what, what he viewed as the 
star lot from the whole auction. So there's a whole kind of interesting thing about a collector being really enticed by the marketing around an auction for a start, but also behaving in a non-traditional way in relation to the fact that they're buying at auction. Yeah, I mean, this really is not the done thing. It's always been so kind of cloak and dagger, the whole buying of works of art and, and, and the, the privacy that collectors prize. It's it has really been one of the defining sort of parts of the, of the art market for, for decades. But what we've got now is we've got people coming in who don't really even know about or play by or care that much about those kind of traditional, very discreet ways of going about buying works of art. And they're quite keen to crow about them on Twitter. So as you said, I mean, Justin Sun, he said back in March that he was the underbidder of, of the people work. And he was quite open about the fact that he was gutted that he didn't get it. And then he immediately tweeted about having bought the Giacometti just now. Another one recently was um, the, at Christie's 21st century evening sale last week, it was another Beeple that appeared, which is it's his first sort of physical sculpture that sold, which is called Human One. It's an astronaut sort of walking through a dystopian landscape. So that was bought by another tech entrepreneur called Ryan Zura. Um, he bought it for $29 million. And again, he promptly tweeted about his new acquisition, which was then retweeted by Beeple, kind of crowing, sort of a gushing retweet saying how thrilled he was to be part of his collection and how he couldn't wait to work with him more. You would just never get that <laughs> with other artists. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, all I can remember, for instance, when Peter Doig, when one of his works broke a record at auction, Doig was deeply embarrassed by this fact. He never wanted to talk about it. It was, it was almost like a source of shame that, that there was this sort of vulgar exchange of cash going on around a work of sort of sacred artistic power. So... That is a major shift, isn't it? That, that, you know, you've got Be Beeple is not just an artist, but he's a tech guy. He's a crypto guy who's for whom um, the market is everything. And it just seems to mark a massive shift. But the fact is, Giacometti's now being drawn into this. Picasso's now being drawn into this. And it seems to me that we're into this whole crazy world. And it's actually, in fact, lots of other collectors seem to be expressing rather clearly their disgust for this uh, series of developments. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of there's a lot of snobbery in the art world. And this is definitely, you know, if people start not playing by the rules, there's a lot of people who do get quite snobbish about it. I don't know. It's, there are pros and cons of, of both ways of doing it. As you say, that there very much is this kind of normally this kind of weird shame, embarrassment associated with artists who are still alive, particularly younger artists whose works go to auction and then fetch a lot of money. And we're seeing that at the moment. But, but still, say with an artist like Flori Yuknovich, um, Jari Fadajutimi, um, artists like that, they, whose works are fetching a lot of money at auction at the moment, and they're very young, you wouldn't get one of those commenting openly or tweeting about it. They are still very much, and, there are, and their galleries particularly, are very much sort of hush-hush about this. It's like, we don't talk about, and Izzy Wood's another one, you know, we don't talk about it. We sort of don't really acknowledge the fact that these works are being flipped into auction and making a lot of money. But then the NFT artists, it's interesting. They've always been way more in control of their market. And let's not forget as well that Beeple consigns these two works that were sold at Christie's this, this year, these two big works. He consigned them directly. So he gets a lot more of that, of that money I mean, pretty much all of it will come back to people. Whereas those other artists whose works have been bought from a gallery and then flipped into the auction, they will only see a tiny resale payment coming coming from there. So, so I think there's a lot of kind of the agency. It's very different when you've got a, a sort of crypto artist. They really are used to being quite in control of their market. 
so it's just an entirely different mentality I think it's really interesting and I quite like the way although I'm not a huge sort of fan of NFTs and I'm sort of sick of hearing about them I do quite like the way that these artists are behaving in such a very different way and they are much more in control they're not just pawns to these sort of investor collectors I want to talk about some of the other sort of lots that have sold, notable lots that have sold this week. One of them is the Frida Kahlo at Sotheby's. And it broke a record. And indeed, it broke a record not just for Frida Kahlo, but for Latin American artists at auction. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because is it right that the bidding wasn't very exactly ferocious? And also, how does it compare with the other records that are broken or, or indeed prices that were fetched over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I I agree with you. It's sort of this work I thought was great. This Frida Kahlo self-portrait of Diego and I with a portrait of Diego Rivera sort of in the center of her forehead. It was painted towards the end of her life when she was really very ill as well. And it's a really sort of affecting portrait. And obviously Frida Kahlo is so popular. The kind of myth of Frida is incredibly kind of popular and, and well known. Um so what surprised me about this work, I mean, it did have a huge estimate on it at 30 to $50 million, but the bidding was just a little bit sort of lackluster, really. It sold for $34.9 million, in, including the fees. It had a third-party guarantee on it as well, so it was already kind of supported by that. Um, but it's still, I mean, a few people have pointed out the fact that that is still half the price of a JPEG NFT by Beeple, apparently. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the value system has become completely screwed up. So uh, considering that sold for 69.3 million back in, back in March, it does kind of leave a bit of a bad taste in your mouth, but it's still a record for any Latin American work of art. I think, as you said, um, it's been sold to a guy who's a big collector of Latin American artists. He's called Eduardo Constantini. Um, so, so it did, it, it did sort of well, but again, like with a lot of these works that are sort of heavily hyped beforehand, they've been guaranteed up to the eyeballs. On the night, it feels a bit phony, the actual bidding for it, because the bidding can just be a little bit thin. And so it sells at this huge number, but sort of a bit quietly and a bit of a sort of anticlimax. One of the things that's interesting about Carlo is, of course, it again brings us back to this issue about women artists versus male artists at auction. And, of course, it's been well documented that still the prices for male artists are still way, way higher than for women artists. Is that still the case? Is, is that borne out in the results from the last couple of weeks? Because we're seeing records tumbling for women artists, right? Yeah, we are, but at a much lower price point. Um, it's interesting, say, to compare the Rothko that sold in the Macro sale on Monday night. So, so it's called Number 7. It was a 1951 Rothko. It's beautiful, this pink, yellow and orange abstract composition that's eight foot tall. That sold for $82.4 million, which is the second highest ever result for, for a Rothko. So it's a big price for a Rothko, but that is a huge amount of money, but perhaps we should compare that to, say, last night's sale at Phillips, which include Phillips sales always tend to include quite a lot of kind of young, hot um, artists. And they did have a lot of female artists and artists of color as well in there. Now, they made some really strong prices, but a lot of those prices, even if they're records, are nowhere near that kind of price. But perhaps rather than comparing the Rothko with the sale of a very young artist, we should look at the Rothko with Joan Mitchell so a Joan Mitchell last night came up it was a late work and an untitled abstraction from from 1992 but it was big and sort of explosively colored and that sold for 10 million 
um, US dollars hammer. So that that was $11.8 million with premium on it against an estimate of four, four to six million. It received a lot of really vigorous bidding on it. And um, so that was a good price, but still, I don't know, is it less than less than eighth of the price yeah. Of, yeah. A, a, of that Rothko? It just sort of, you know, you just see so many of these works coming up. I mean, the Rothko is a little bit different, but to me, something like, for instance, again, a, a Macaulay work, Warhol's Nine Marilyns from 1962, that sold to its guarantor, but that sold forty, just over 47 million and I just feel like you see so many, we know there are so many of those silk screens around as well. And I mean, they're so ubiquitous. It really is that I cannot imagine why you'd want to spend $47 million on a work that is so like so many others. And it just feels like we just see these works coming around again and again. So that kind of thing just really shows up to me the still this total disparity um, in how we price the works male and female artists of, of the same era as well and I really do hope that that starts to to level out I mean at the moment you have young female artists say like Flora Yuknovich whose work suddenly starts selling for just over two million pounds having been selling for 30,000 pounds like two years ago so yes that's sort of a good thing for female artists but I don't think that's so much about um sort of leveling the gender playing field as much as people just thinking they can make a lot of money out of an artist very quickly that's interesting yeah so um, and in fact we should say that we're talking on thursday ahead of the sale at sotheby's of, of contemporary art on thursday night which does ha- actually have another of flora's work so we'll wait and see what what happens there yeah i wanted to return back actually now to to we, we began by talking about the cox collection and, and, and impressionism there was a there was a really notable kaibot work that came up in the cox collection how did that do the Kaibot did very well. It was beautiful. What I should say is these sales have been kind of held together. It's almost like if you imagine like an auction, if you will, wearing a kind of pair of Spanx pants and a kind of push-up bra. In terms of guarantees, they have been so scaffolded by them. It's extraordinary. Um, so they've been totally kind of falsely held up by them, which is why they've done quite so well, why we've had so many sort of white glove sales and things. But the Kaibot, they didn't go for a guarantee on this which is interesting because I think it shows quite how much faith they had in this work, making a lot of money. It's a work that is, it depicts his um, brother, his middle brother, René, who died not very long after this picture was completed. Um, It's called Young Man at a Window. It's painted in 1876. And it shows this sort of smartly dressed young man staring out at a Parisian boulevard. And it's it's gorgeous and you feel like you know this painting very well because it's been printed so many times and it's been in so many books but it hasn't actually been shown that much recently because Cox has had it in his private collection and and it really hasn't been shown publicly but um anyway so I think I think a lot of people sort of really felt quite connected to this work and it sold last week during the sale um to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles for 43 million dollars and um, it was estimated around $50 million. It's a record for his work. And this work was acquired um, by Cox from Wildenstein Gallery in 1995. And it really was the sort of linchpin of, of his collection. It really defined his taste as well. So it was used as a sort of hero image for this, for this sale. But I think a lot of people were really pleased to see that work do well. And it totally shattered the previous record for Kaibot's work, which was set at Christie's in 2019. And that was uh, $16.6 million. 
pounds. So it it really did sort of break break through that. And I think it's probably going to be one of the kind of memorable works of this giga fortnight, as they call it. Absolutely. And, and lastly, I think that what that tells us, apart from anything else, is that very few museums are actually in this market now. You've got figures like Justin Sun and the other private collectors who are snapping up these works everywhere. But it's only really the Getty, and I can't think of it, any single other institution, maybe the Met, who can actually afford actually to bid at auction for works like this Kybot. Yeah, it's really unusual. I mean, it, it was bought by Adam Williams as a dealer who was bidding in the room and he, and he bought it for the Getty. He was working with the Getty um, and bought it with them. But as you say, it, it's great to see a work of this standard and one that's sort of so so famous and widely known from literature, yet so, so little seen in, in public, go to a major museum like the Getty. Um, I mean, you certainly, you'd never ever see a UK museum buying at, buying at auctions. Um, and even the US museums, which tend to have a lot more money, they really can't afford to play at this kind of level, the, the Getty perhaps, but it, it's just great to see a work like this go somewhere like that. And it will be going on, on public display. I think they're going to be cleaning it, but it will be going on public display soon. Well, Anna, thank you for guiding us through an extraordinary couple of weeks. Thank you very much, Ben. You can read all our sales reports from New York at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Coming up, we hear about Fabergé in London and about a Dura drawing. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has shifted the decision for returning the Parthenon marbles to Greece to the trustees of the British Museum after meeting the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. As Gareth Harris writes, last week Mitsotakis ramped up his demands for returning the ancient artefacts, saying that the sculptures belong in the Acropolis Museum in Athens. The British Museum stated that its position is to remain focused on the value of the collection as a whole and the very important part the Parthenon sculptures play in that. Even if the trustees did decide to repatriate the works, it would require the British Museum Act of 1963 in UK law to be rescinded via an Act of Parliament. The Salvatore Mundi, which sold for $450 million in 2017 as a fully authenticated Leonardo, has been downgraded by the curators at the Prado in Madrid. The downgrading comes in the catalogue of the Prado exhibition Leonardo and the copy of the Mona Lisa, which runs in Madrid until the 23rd of January 2022. Although individual specialists have questioned the status of the Salvatore Mundi, the Prado decision represents the most critical response from a leading museum since the Christie's sale. The Prado's verdict is recorded in the exhibition catalogue's Index, which has one list of paintings by Leonardo and another for attributed works, workshop or authorised and supervised by Leonardo. The world's most expensive artwork is recorded in the latter category. And finally, the artist Jimmy Durham has died, aged 81. The death of the celebrated American artist, best known for incorporating Native American imagery and indigenous themes into his highly colourful sculptures in diverse materials, was announced by Monica Manzuto, the co-founder of his Mexico City gallery, Curie Manzuto. Durham died at his home in Berlin. In recent years, Durham was accused of appropriating Native American culture in his work, but he maintained he was Cherokee and was supported by other people from indigenous American communities. You can read these stories and much more on the website or on the app. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Luxury Week returns this holiday season from the 23rd of November to the 10th of December at Christie's New York with four live and online auction of jewels, watches, handbags and more. Highlights include Van Cleef & Arpel's Art Deco Diamond Bracelet, timeless watches from Patek Philippe and Rolex, a rare white Himalaya Birkin and collectible streetwear, accessories and sneakers such as Michael Jordan's final season regular game-worn sneakers. Discover these covetable treasures in person at Christie's Rockefeller Centre Galleries beginning on Friday the 3rd of December. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, tomorrow the Victorian Albert Museum is opening the major show Fabergé in London, Romance to Revolution. The exhibition traces the life and work of Karl Fabergé, the legendary Russian imperial goldsmith, and tells the story for the first time of his little-known London branch. It was his only shop outside of Russia, and opening in 1903, served an international crowd of British aristocrats, American heiresses, and maharajas who flocked there to buy luxury gifts to one another. The show displays more than 200 Fabergé items, including a collection of imperial easter eggs for which Fabergé is best known. Our deputy digital editor Amy Dawson spoke to the co-curators Kieran McCarthy, the joint managing director of Wartsky, a London dealer specialising in Russian works of art, and Hannah Fowby, a curator at the V&A, about the show. I wanted to ask first because when you hear the word Fabergé you think egg but naturally that's not the only thing that we're talking about. So can you explain a bit about what Fabergé really is? So out of the thousands, if not tens of thousands of objects that emerge from Fabergé's workshops, a tiny proportion were actually Easter eggs. Um, There's so much more to his world. And that's what we're hoping in the exhibition, that people will come in thinking Fabergé eggs and eggs and Fabergé, but they will leave knowing so much more. And I've had a surfeit of eggs too. (laughs) And can you tell us about the founder? So Carl Fabergé, his kind of vision, his business acumen really pushed this incredible industry and the whole show that we see. Yeah, well, Carl is inseparable from the story. The story is Carl's and the cliche. And it's a a wonderful one, though, and very informative, is that he was a restless imagination on the edge of Europe and completely and utterly devoted to his craft and so the the whimsy of Fabergé, the understanding of the materials, the meticulous craftsmanship, and his ability, I think, also to understand the sort of zeitgeist of his age, where there was such a focus on the joy and giving of exquisite works of art. And I think Fabergé picked up on all of those to create the world that you will see in the exhibition. And let's talk about the exhibition. There's a great focus within it about London and the part that it played that's quite underknown. So obviously we think of it as a Russian kind of enterprise, but there's a lovely aspect to this show that describes how it branched out into London. So can you explain why London became so important? So the natural place for Fabergé would have been Paris, you could have argued. At this point in time, London was the financial capital of the world and huge wealth was streaming into the city. Uh, It attracted a very wealthy clientele, an international clientele. And so the potential 
patronage potential new customers were definitely available in London. But of course, there's also the link between the uh, Imperial Romanov family and the British royal family. Uh, Queen Alexandra was the sister of the dowager uh, Maria Fyodorovna. And so they had already in in the British royal family been introduced to the wonders of Fabish's world uh, long before he uh, opened his shop in London in 1903. And I believe it was Henry Bainbridge who said that uh, it was almost a, a gesture to Alexandra that Fabergé opened his shop in London. So there's a lovely section in the show that displays the ways that Fabergé tailored his works to his new British clientele and it's focused on animals, especially the animals of the royal family. Can you talk a bit about how the style or the subjects changed when this store in London or the production in London began? Oh, certainly. After the London branch opened, um, talking of animals, the, the sort of British tail began to wag the Russian dog. And the workshops in Russia began to produce pieces for this British audience. And it's wonderful. You can see the passions and pastimes and interests of the British clientele begin to be reflected in Fabergé's work. And one of those pastimes, which is equally evident today as it was then, were their pets and their animals. And so Fabergé began to produce for his English clientele these delightful, charming, nonsensical studies in Siberian hearthstones, mounted with diamonds and uh, with gold feet and gold beaks of British animals. And the greatest aspect of this was the Sandringham Commission, when Edward VII's and Queen Alexandra's animals at Sandringham, their favourite Norfolk estate, were modelled by Fabergé. And we have in the exhibition, by the generosity of Her Majesty in the Royal Collection, I think all of the known Sandringham animals. And so that's one way in which it is done. But there are many, and some of them are slightly sort of more nuanced. I think Fabergé was picking up on the relationships between his British patrons and then reflecting those in his work. The other aspect, of course, which is so um, brilliant and took us on a wonderful sort of tangent away from Fabergé, is British horse racing. And in British horse racing... Fabergé represented this over and over again. And so we have two sculptures of Persimmon, who was Edward VII's horse, and St. Frusquin, who was Leopold the Rothschild's horse, both produced by Fabergé in London for those respective owners, but they've never been together ever. And we now have the two horses in the exhibition running a sort of virtual race between each other. And Persimmon won. Yeah, and it's lovely. There's a, a lovely painting beside it showing that race. So that was beautiful. And of course, in London, there were more than just the British clientele. It was a very cosmopolitan space at this time and lots of international travellers. So perhaps you can tell us about some of the other clientele, big patrons of this time. The idea of London as an international city is, as it is now, was very much evident in Edwardian London as well. And I think if you sort of look at the exhibition, and hopefully this will be an aspect that people will take away, is that Edwardian London is not so different to our own. And of course, now we're sort of known as Moscow on Thames. But in 1910, it was St. Petersburg on Thames. There was such a Russian community in the city. 
And they were very keen and devoted customers of Fabergé, using Fabergé's shop as an outpost of home and a means of displaying the beauty and charm of their homeland to their English friends and acquaintances. So the Russians are one aspect of that. But the other ones are the Americans. And I think um, we can't overestimate the impact of the American patronage, not only on Fabergé, but in London in the entire Edwardian era. Over 100 American era married into the British aristocracy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And they brought with them great wealth and a great understanding of the society into which they were entering. And so as they entered into it, they began to share their hosts' appetites for Fabergé's works. And you see that over and over again, whether it's um, Indian Maharajas, Thai princes, French aristocrats, or even sort of German industrialists. There was an international congregation in London, and London was a place where these people met, as it is today. There are so many exceptional works in the show, lots of bringing together of pieces that have been otherwise apart or loans that haven't been seen for years and years and every piece is such an intricate work of art in itself but there are some pieces that really stand out so maybe we can talk about some of them in detail and one of them that really caught my eye because I love these kinds of stories is an imperial golden egg that was actually rediscovered that had been found by an American scrap metal dealer that had been sent in to be scrapped as just a metal and turned out to be one of the most prized Fabergé items. Can you talk about that story? Yes, well, that's um, part of sort of the history of Fabergé collecting over the last decade is, and, and not just Fabergé collecting, but just sort of, of the art and antiques world of rediscovery and um, and just sort of weird serendipity bringing this object back into our world. An American gentleman bought this, um, what he believed just to be a, a gold object, and he bought it largely on the value of its um, gold. He put it on a, a scales, measured it, saw how much gold was on that day, calculated how many grams of gold was in the item, and bought it accordingly. I think when we sat in the V&A, and when we're sat here as sort of people in the art world, it's very easy to sort of feel as though that couldn't possibly happen. But when you go out there, there is a world of cash converters. You know, there's a world of buying and selling and melting gold. And that's always been one of the perils of great works of art in gold is, is that their value sometimes in that moment of need leads to them being um, broken up or melted down. This Easter egg was very much in that world. It wasn't a work of art. It was a lump of gold. And this gentleman bought it. He couldn't sell it for the amount that he thought he could. And then went online where he then hit upon sort of acres of Fabergé research about a missing imperial Easter egg. And if you imagine, it's slightly larger than a a hen's egg, maybe a sort of duck egg size. And he picked up his duck egg of gold and then looked at all the research online and thought, well, this is the same thing. And then he put it down and said, I can't be such an idiot. Of course it's not. And then he picked it up again and looked at it and said, it is the same thing. And through many sort of then adventures, he brought the egg to London and it was indeed the missing Imperial Easter egg. It answers every question you could possibly want from it. It's pictured in 1902 in the Von Dervis exhibition. It has a complete provenance from 
from the time of the Soviets onwards. So it's the most miraculous object, and we have it in the exhibition. But it is one of many that we have in the exhibition. So there is a a sort of rediscovered treasure aspect to that. But the third imperial Easter egg is only one of 15 that we have in the exhibition. And 15 is the largest number of Easter eggs that's been gathered together for over a generation. The The next largest number was in 1989. And so there haven't been so many Easter eggs in one place since then. And there are no more Easter eggs in one place anywhere in the world than there are in the V&A at the moment. That's so special. And I have to ask, you authenticated this special golden egg. Um, what kind of price would something like that now that we're talking about it was once almost scrapped for its metal value. Yeah, I think I'm, the idea of value is, um, is, is very interesting. Of course, it's very pertinent. But I think in this instance, it's one where they are just priceless. I don't actually know what it would be worth today. And I think the reason for that is, is that they are not bought and sold. And so therefore, if they're not bought and sold, you can't say, well, the last Jeff Koons sold for this, and so the next one's going to be worth that. There are no precedents in recent times for the sale of Easter eggs. So I'm not being coy, although I would be coy about values, but I think they are almost priceless. So I want to ask you, Hannah, about a beautiful little figurine you showed me of a dog called Caesar that has a lovely story. Can you explain that piece and and what plans you have for it? So Caesar was a wire hair fox terrier owned by Edward VII and his very favourite dog. And wherever Caesar, rather wherever the king went, the Caesar went to. And... Caesar was so precious to the king and their relationship was so close that when King Edward VII died, Caesar was in the funeral parade. And indeed, uh, where Edward VII lies at Windsor, he is uh, immortalized with Caesar at his feet. So Caesar was a very important dog in, in Edward VII's life. And He was distraught, supposedly, when Edward VII died and he was walking around the palace crying and looking for his master. And supposedly this gave rise to this story, this wonderful uh, children's book, which was incredibly popular. And in its 13th edition, which is the edition we are showing in the exhibition already in in 1910, uh, the year it first came out. And it is a story that is called Where is Master? And it is about Caesar uh, looking for his king. And and, um, it is very, very lovely, written in just the most wonderful child's level. Um, And we are going to have this book available as some of our digital content to go with the exhibition so people can read it and um, hopefully have a, a lovely little moment about how to deal with difficult things in life. So you have said about how incredibly rare and sort of unprecedented the sales of imperial easter eggs are Um, but of course there is a huge market for Fabergé in general so can you give me an example kind of what the market is like now are they still as incredibly popular as they were in their early days and what's kind of the highest market price for a Fabergé item? 
Wow, there are so many factors there. I think Fabergé sort of continually sort of seduces people. So I think it's been a continuous process really from the moment of the revolution onwards, and they've approached the subject in many different ways. So there are legendary Fabergé collectors, and they come and they go. Um, One of the greatest Fabergé collectors of my own experience was Harry Wolfe. And Harry Wolfe is having a sale at Christie's, which is going to happen. Actually, it was organised to go very smartly of Christie's to coincide with the Fabergé exhibition. And Harry, I think, was one of the all-time greats. He had an intimate understanding of the subject. And he knew it. He knew it inside out. It was infuriating when an object came up at the most remote auction. You know, Padstow Auction House had a hidden Fabergé sleeping figure. And he'd ring me up and say, Kieran, have you seen that figure in Padstow? And so, yeah, he was infuriating. But Harry is one of, one of many who, over the generations, has collected Fabergé. And that process is continuing. New people are brought into it all the time. One of the things that I see happening um, is that there is an increased museumification of objects. And forgive me, museums are where objects go to die when it comes to trading. And so there is a tendency for objects to be installed into museums and are therefore no longer available. And over the past decades, that has been increasingly so. The Fabergé Museum in St. Petersburg um, really absorbed a great proportion of the objects that were available, and they are now entrenched there. So the ability to acquire great works of art by Fabergé is actually diminishing. And I think when we refer to the Easter eggs recently by saying that there are really no sales, I think there are pieces available, but there are fewer and fewer of them. And I think that is the process that we're witnessing at the moment. And the market is, I think, responding to that, that when they do come up, Sotheby's had the most incredible sale of the Brooklyn Museum's collection, and the prices there were stellar. They just sort of rocketed way beyond all expectations, and they all sold fabulously. And I think that is almost the world's appreciation of museumification in reverse. This was a museum deaccessioning, and so those items were released back onto the market, and the demand for them was incredible. But in general, the direction is the opposite. They are going into either museum collections or collections where they are unlikely to be sold again for a very long time. And we're talking now, I'm going to press you on the finances, we're talking now millions and millions of pounds. Yes, well, yeah, absolutely. You can spend millions of pounds on Fabergé. You can spend tens of millions of pounds on Fabergé, but you could also buy a piece of Fabergé for two to three thousand pounds. You know, the very simple silver-mounted glass items have all of the craftsmanship, all of the design, all of the history of Fabergé objects, but let's say for five thousand pounds, you may be able to acquire one of those. Or you can go to the other end of the spectrum and let's say notionally you could buy an Easter egg, it would be tens of millions of pounds. So yes, Fabergé items are expensive follies, yes. But because of their rarity and their popularity combined, there have long been copies made of Fabergé items kind of on the market. There's a specialist, Giza von Hasberg, who even coined this term, which I really enjoyed, the Fabergé. So... How does a museum go about making sure that the works they put on show in an exhibition like this are the real deal? 
I think it's expertise. It's the understanding of the world. It's the sort of the collective understanding of the legitimacy of the objects. And of course, at the V&A, that's beyond measure. Everything is sieved and assessed and studied to the nth degree. And we are also here at this moment where we're staging this exhibition. We are all standing on the shoulders of previous Fabergé expertise and research. And so there have been decades of the study, which over the last, say, three decades since Perestroika and Glasnost has actually accelerated tremendously. We know more about Fabergé now than we ever did. And of course, the more you know, the more the gaps close in our understanding. And I think at this point, we are in a golden age of Fabergé research. There was an exhibition earlier this year at the Winter Palace in Russia that really set the Fabergé world alight in that the London art dealer Andrei Ruzhnikov said that there were more than 20 fakes. And this was in, you know, kind of the centre of expertise for Fabergé. How does something like that happen in the golden age and in kind of the birthplace of this special design? I think it's inappropriate for us to comment upon the activities of a system museum. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. And finally, let's talk about how the exhibition ends because it's such a glorious kind of presentation of these intricate, beautiful items. And it has a very sad ending that is tied very much to the history and the, the kind of political situation of the time. So can you tell me about the end of the exhibition and kind of how Fabergé is in the world today? I think it's the penultimate room that you are referring to, the room of uh, war and and revolution and exile. This is really to sort of explain to people what happened to Fabergé, both the man and the firm, and how he was swept away in, in the events of of the time. What happened first of all was of course the First World War which was a deeply uh, unpopular activity. Over nine million people in Russia, soldiers died fighting that war and that of course led to the abdication of the Tsar and then the Bolshevik revolution and the assassination of the Romanov family. And in the midst of all of this, ordinary people were caught up in the events as well, and Fabergé and his family were were no different. And of course, they had been part of an enchanted world that was no longer there, and there was really not so much useful for them anymore. Um, people were drafted to to the front. Um, the whole enterprise was, was sort of shattered. And uh, Karl Fabergé himself uh, fled first to, to Riga and then to Germany and then ended in Lausanne in Switzerland where he died in 1920. But I think... One thing that really came out of sort of diving into that part of Fabish's life is the tragedy, but also the personality and the humanity of Karl Fabergé comes out. Uh, during the war, he is trying to make the business continue and he is desperately short of money. He can't pay his staff. He has to write to the powers that may be at the time uh, to ask them to pay him. And you really get a sense of his 
his care and his nurture and his sense of responsibility for the people that are depending on him. And then also the words of Eugène Fabergé in this letter communication that uh, happens after Carl Fabergé's death in the 1930s and 40s with Henry Bainbridge, the London branch manager, where Eugène so very, very beautifully puts Fabergé's life before us. And a very potent quote is that Fabergé died broken-hearted because he just could not understand that what there was to live for after having created this first-class jewellery business over, over 50 years, it was just so stupidly and senselessly uh, had come to an end. So there's a lot of sadness, but then hopefully what will happen is that our visitors will come into the very final room and they will enjoy the legacy of Fabergé with the Easter eggs. So we very much hope that we won't leave people needing Kleenexes as they are exiting, but rather <laughs> that, that we can bring you up back again and, and um, remember the beauty, the uh, craftsmanship, the imagination and the excellence of Peter Carl Fabergé and what he created. I think that's a really nice way to end. Thank you, Hannah and Kieran, so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Fabergé in London, Romance to Revolution, opens on the 20th November and continues until the 8th of May 2022. Now it's time for the work of the week. To coincide with the National Gallery in London's Dura exhibition, which opens this week, the Agnews Gallery in London will open an exhibition called Dura and His Time, centred on the discovery of an unpublished pen and black ink drawing by Albert Dura, the virgin and child with a flower on a grassy bench. Martin Bailey, our London correspondent, went to the gallery to talk to Clifford Shorer and Julia Bartram about the work. Well, I'm talking to Clifford Shorer, who is um, the head of Agnews, I believe. Uh, you were the one who found the drawing. Can uh, you tell us what you felt when you first saw the drawing? I felt instantly that I was either being deceived by one hemisphere of my brain and convinced by the other hemisphere of my brain, and there was a real internal conflict about whether it was possible that what I was looking at could be real. But I absolutely felt instinctively it was 100% correct. Yeah. Now, going back to the story, I believe that it was um, bought by the person that you met at a, an estate auction. Was it a small auction or was it a major auction house? It wasn't an auction at all. It was actually the daughters of uh, the homeowner. Uh, when the homeowner passed away, the daughters ran a small two-day sale on site in the home and put stickers with prices on items. And people came and lined up in the morning and went through the house and picked the items they wanted to buy. And what was on the sticker? My understanding, I didn't see the sticker itself, but my understanding was that it was priced at $30 and that the gentleman came in and uh, picked it up off the table, thought it was a nice-looking thing, and said he agreed to pay $30. And was there any label describing what it was? Well, apparently one of the family members said that, oh, you want to buy the Durer, which I think she said in jest, and he said yes. And that was... So the, the extent of their knowledge was based on a family understanding that it was a fake Albrecht Durer. Yes, I mean, it was owned by uh, an architect, quite a distinguished architect um, from a family who knew quite a lot about art. Um, so it is surprising that something with such a prominent 
AD monogram uh, should have escaped. And uh, even if someone thought it was a Dura print, it still would have been worth many thousands of dollars. How did it escape? Well, it, it, to me, it seems like it was hiding in plain sight in, in one of the preeminent families in the art world uh, from the 19th century forward. I mean, Maison Carlian in Paris was one of the best regarded boiserie and furniture dealers in the history of dealing, and their archive is at the Getty now. And the notes that we saw from the family indicate that in the 50s, when this passed from father to son, it was listed as a dry point engraving bearing false monogram Albrecht Dürer. So it seemed as though they had either lost track of it or convinced themselves that it wasn't correct at some point in the family's history. And when you saw it out of the frame, or maybe it wasn't framed then, was it immediately obvious that it was a drawing, not a print? It was immediately obvious on one level, but then on another level, it was um, presented in such a way. It was matted with a handmade mat that looked quite old, and it was on extended paper. So the paper had been extended to fit it to the mat, and it had been artificially aged with a kind of watercolor treatment that one recognizes as a sort of artificial antiquing. And it did give the impression that it was a drawing underneath all of that, but there was much to do to discover, you know, what all of that treatment was about. And when do you think it was artificially aged? I mean, in what decade would you say? My best guess, based on the handmade mat, which we have here, yeah. is that it probably was done in the late 19th century, yeah. or early 20th, potentially. Yeah. So now it's on display, uh, I believe, for the first time at Agnews in central London and St. James's for sale. What are you able to say about the price? Well, we're being a, a bit obtuse about the price, but, but it's, uh, we're, we're asking in the eight figures. Um, we can't be more specific than that at the moment, but obviously we're hoping to engage with a serious collector or a museum that understands the importance of a discovery like this and that is interested in having it. Yes. So is it near £10 million? Ah, you're, you're going to be specific. Yeah. I, I have to be a bit vague, but I yeah. will say that I believe, and I, I believe that those in the market know that it's among the most valuable old master drawings ever to be presented for sale in recent years, and that the comparable that I would draw you to is the Raphael at US$47 million, US dollars, which yeah. sold about four years ago. Um, I, you know, that's a guiding principle in the in the market is sort of where it falls among other artists, simply because there are no comparables uh, of this level for Durer in the market in many decades. Yes. So it could fetch a record price, but that obviously depends on who you find this interesting. Indeed, it could fetch a record price. But, but, you know, our primary focus, as you know, has been to sort of build the scholarship around it and bring it to, uh, bring it to the public view. Yes. And finally, it would be wonderful if it ended up in a museum or public collection. But obviously, that price is extremely unlikely. What sort of person will it appeal to? Well, I think the longer-term perspective, I think, on drawings of this quality is that, yes, it may end up now in the hands of a private collector who has the funds to be able to afford it, and probably a very serious private collector with a large collection. Yeah. Um, this is not a kind of drawing you'd buy as a one-off, I don't think. And most of those collections, at least those that I'm familiar with on a first-hand basis, will end up in public collections. So, you know, the, there may be a period of a lifetime where it resides in a private apartment or a private home, but I think the eventual um, resting place will be an American or European museum. That's my guess. 
Thank you very much. Thank and you. Perhaps we can move on, Cliff, and uh, talk to Julia Bartram, who was one of the British Museum curators in the prints and drawings department and is a Dura specialist, to ask about the art history. And obviously my question is why she thinks it's the real thing. This is the most exciting discovery, as far as I can see, for decades. Dura, uh, first and foremost, it's got his monogram on it, very clearly drawn in the same ink as the drawing itself. Uh, Dura monograms are fraught with difficulty, as I'm sure a lot of people have ever been anywhere near this, and there were a lot that were faked and added and put on a later date. But this, after examining it pretty closely, really does look like the real thing and can be compared with others. The drawing itself clearly was um, covered up and obscured with time and the ageing which had been done to it. But what has been revealed is a, is a pen and ink drawing in black ink, the type of, of ink that he used at this period, around 1503, which is what we're putting to it. And the paper itself is on this very interesting trident watermarked paper, which is known in a large group of Dura drawings over an extended period of time, but is not known anywhere else. It is not recorded in the famous watermark catalogues, Briquet and Picard, that everybody consults. Um, but it is known in over 200 Dura sheets, which is a fascinating um, bit of information in itself. It's linked with the Fugger family of Augsburg, who Dura is known to have had dealings with and connections with, and indeed painted the portrait of Jakob Fugger. And it's clear that Fugger's owned wealthiest bankers of the time who funded the papacy and the Medici family and, and all sorts of people who are known at the time, also owned copper mines and paper mills. So we're doing more research into that side of it. But beyond that, the subject itself is fascinating. Dürer was obsessed around this time, the early decades of the 16th century, with representations of the Holy Family, the Virgin and Child, there are several drawings of this subject which fit into this category. One at the British Museum it can be closely compared with this. The Virgin and Child in a slightly different position, seated on a, on a grassy bench, as we call them. They look horribly uncomfortable, but it's always of this type, um, a sort of bench with, with grass sticking out of it, which clearly goes back to this tradition of, of the Virgin and Child in an enclosed garden, symbolising her virginity, and indeed alludes to other compositions of this type. Most notably, a very famous watercolour in Vienna, but known as the Virgin Child with a multitude of animals. But what, what is really engaging about it is the treatment of the drapery, the treatment of the, of the child itself, which is what we looked at very carefully. There are other drawings, as I say, this is one in, in the British Museum, which is dated 1503. It is very close in design this, to this, but not the same. So you can see Dura is is really at his best. He was a compulsive draftsman. Can I ask what your reaction was when you first saw it? Because obviously it's very unusual for unknown Dura drawings to emerge. Uh, and initially you must have been slightly suspicious. So when you actually saw it, we may have seen a, a, a photograph first, but when you saw it in the flesh, uh, what was your immediate thought my immediate reaction was of suspicion, as you say, because there's so much that has been written and known and published on Dura, Dura's work, Dura's drawings, that you, can, you have to start off at that side of the fence. But then the more you look at it, um, particularly the way he has done the hatching, he focuses on the representation of light and shade um, and has worked really hard so that you can 
actually sort of work out. You can visualise very clearly what angle these figures are facing and how the light falls on them. And also his fascination with the child. There are other um, virgin childs that, this, uh, that he draws a bit earlier than this, most notably the one, one of the last ones to come up on the market that it's in the British Museum slightly earlier. The child looks much smaller and more doll-like and, and the virgin is holding her close too. But at this time, which is towards the time that he developed his compositions of this type, um, the, the child is much bigger, it's wriggling, it's turning around. So there's that idea of how you play with the idea of a small child. Could I ask whether there's any possibility it's from Dürer's workshop? Perhaps you can explain whether people in his workshop would have done similar drawings and whether they would have used the AD monogram. It's extremely unlikely that they would have used the AD monogram for the simple reason that Dürer himself had um, advertised the fact that he really, really didn't want this to happen. And in a later case, there was a law case in in Nuremberg, which forbade anybody using the AD monogram, um, you know, fraudulently, because there were a lot of copies around. We do know, indeed, of course, that around this time, 1503, um, Dürer went to Italy and he left a workshop behind, uh, which uh, there were indeed members of it working there. Hans Baldung, in particular, is supposed to have used Dürer's drawings and, you know, made compositions of his own, most notably the painting in the National Gallery, which is now thought by many to be by Hans Baldung, which Dürer's drawings were used, authentic Dürer drawings were used for the basis of it. It's the Virgin Child with the Iris. Baldung has a very, very different, very distinct style of draftsmanship at this date. So are you saying that you, you do recognise Dürer's hand and I, not I reckon, any of the members of the studio? In this, I, I would certainly relate it to other accepted drawings by Dürer, and it looks very close to me, the sort of thing that he would do. Dürer's style at around 1503 is very different. Baldung has a very zany approach, almost impatient to his drawings and the curls of the hair in particular of his virgin and Charles and indeed of many of his female saints and women in general goes off at wild tangents as though he can't resist this hair it's as though they're, they're sort of being blow drying all the time what was the purpose of the drawing was it just a, a self-standing drawing uh, to sell was it a model for the studio uh, to use or for Dior himself to use was it a model for a print that was never made, as far as we know? What was the purpose of the drawing? Dura drew compulsively, as I have said already. He made frequent compositions in association with the Virgin Child at this date. There are prints that are made, that they're very elaborate. They, none of them are based exactly on this drawing. This drawing, I think, was made as a, as a one-off, but it was used in connection with the very famous watercolour in Vienna, the Virgin Child with the Multitude of Animals which was probably made a bit later in date. And that is a typical way that he worked. He made drawings as a sort of build up a stock that he would then go back to and refer himself. You can look at it, you can see it in engravings such as Adam and Eve, for example, in which he used a study of the rabbit and the uh, cow in the background from studies he has made from nature. And this drawing is very similar um, it's as though he's constantly, continually trying to work out the position of the Virgin and Child and would have used it later. There is no known painting or print related 
to this sheet, but that's not uncommon with many of his drawings of this date. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you, Martin, for inviting us to do this podcast. Dürer and his time is at Agnes in London from the 20th of November until the 12th of December. And Dürer's journeys, travels of a Renaissance artist, is at the National Gallery in London from tomorrow, the 20th of November, until the 27th of February, 2022. And that's all for this episode. Do subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With. There's a new episode, A Brush With, Billy Zangewa, out now. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests Anna, Amy, Kieran and Hannah, Martin, Clifford and Julia. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.